Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues. We hope you'll join us every Friday. And we are excited to be back from our summer Oh my gosh, Ellen, we're back, we're back, we're back. back. (laughs) So, and we have a big episode to kick us off. We are joined by Shawnee Superintendent, Dr. April Grace. Welcome, Dr. Grace. Hi, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, And Dr. Grace also happens to be running for state superintendent and is in um, her final election on August 23rd for the primary for the Republican seat. So, but just to kind of start us off, Dr. Grace, your career has been in education. So how did you choose education and kind of a little bit about that path for you? Oh, gosh. Um, You know, I originally started out, my first law was kind of medicine. And so I started out majoring in science and had intentions to go to med school at some point. Um, But I kind of then went into the path of uh, science education so that I had something else to do. You know, because at that point back then, and I, I don't I assume it could still be that way, you know, med school was a waiting process, PA school, things like that were, um, you know, rigorous process to get in. You didn't know if you'd get in right away and things like that. And really um, fell in love with teaching and, you know, did some coaching along along the side for and just, you know, fell in love with it and fell in love with the profession and then ended up getting married and having a baby. And so, you know, it was a, a teaching then just was that profession that made sense. And I continued in it, had an opportunity when my daughter was like four or five to um, perhaps go to med school or PA school and, you know, had a number of opportunities to sort of exit at, at different particular points. And at that point, couldn't fathom first of all, giving up that much time of her life at those critical stages. Um, And I just really loved the work I did. And so I stayed in it and ended up with a doctorate anyway, just not a a medical doctor. So um, it's been a a great journey. And I tell people all the time, I have been so blessed. Every job I've ever had in education and the time I was in that job, I felt like it was the very best thing I'd ever done in my life up to that point in my career. And that I was just like born to do it. Um, and I feel the same way now. And I just feel like I've been exceptionally blessed in that way. Dr. Grace, I was going to, um, I was going to really go like your path and do medical school. And in biology, I had to prick up my partner's finger and I couldn't do it. So, um, I knew that was not, uh, the pathway. Path. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I couldn't. She had to prick her own finger. It was awful. Um, I, I worked at the heart station at the after I graduated from uh, high school. I worked in the heart station in the summers, and so on Saturday and Sunday mornings from six a.m. to three, uh, I worked in the heart station at Norman Regional Hospital, and uh, so I did EKGs and echocardiograms and things like that. So anyway, did, did you have to prick anybody's finger? Didn't have to prick anybody's okay. finger. See, that's like the true test. Can you prick somebody's finger? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't ever have to do that. So. <laughs> so so, you've gone from teacher, administrator, district superintendent. Um, so tell me, tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about why. I have two questions for you. Why did you put your name on the ballot? 
And, and what do you want to change? Um, gosh, well, I put my name on the ballot. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons I, well, maybe not a lot, but there are a few reasons I put my name on the ballot. It's a, a, it's the right point in my career. I understand the significance of, I think now of, of these statewide positions and the impact that it has on our local community schools and the importance of ensuring that we have people that have both experience and understanding of the complexity of how schools operate as decisions get made and various things and the spillover effect that it has. And really a lot of the why for me was that um, I have a four-year-old granddaughter. And so ensuring the next eight years of Oklahoma public education is set on a trajectory um, that gives her the foundation that she needs moving forward as an Oklahoma citizen and that she can be a contributor to our state and to society as a whole. So for me, it was really more of a, a sort of this journey of a, of a thing about serving. That's all I've done for 33 years is serve. My family um, has always been a lot in service ministry or other um, avenues of service. And so it's just what I know. It's who I am. And for me, it's more of an act of uh, of love for I, that I have for Oklahoma education. And it just made sense. It just felt right. Uh, I felt really kind of this urgency to do it. And so I felt like I'll just lean in and we'll, we'll see what happens. So I kind of stepped out, um, I think, in faith, just taking a journey that I believed I was supposed to take. So what do, what do you want to change? So when I look at the things we need to change, I mean, Lord, I think, you know, growth model assessments, um, I have keen interest in growth model assessment tools. I think, you know, our end of instruction, I call them end of the year autopsy reports, um, are not as beneficial and meaningful that I believe as what we can do that's more aligned with the work, you know, growth model assessments are much more aligned with the work that goes on in a classroom and a district daily. So I'd like to change that and we'll have to see what the opportunities are to change that. Um, I'd like to make a dramatic impact and difference on the teacher shortage. We have a, a tremendous, you know, shortage across not just our state. It's a, it's a national issue, really. Um, but how do we do a better job in Oklahoma of, of sort of stopping that bleeding and, you know, and just lifting up the respect of the profession? What I know is in the context of local communities, most local communities feel great about their local school district. They just aren't sure about that school district over across the state. Um, or that one, if you're in the rural part of the state, they aren't sure about those ones in the metro area and how they're functioning. So for me, um, you know, I, I think it's restoring that respect and really thinking about how do we do um, this marketing campaign around Oklahoma local community schools, even if that's our public charters, which we have some fantastic ones. And how do we highlight these phenomenal things that happen every day in classrooms and schools across our state? Um, that just don't seem to end up getting highlighted. And I always say, as educators, we're really, we kind of suck at marketing and PR because we're really just too busy doing the work, serving the yeah. kids and families. And so how do we uplift how people are feeling and how do we show them, not just all the, anytime there's an incident or a situation that gets highlighted, but how do we do a better job of highlighting the incredible things that happen every single day in Oklahoma education and in classrooms all across our state. And so, you know, those are, those are some of the things I think I want to change. Like how do we change that perception that people have and educational outcomes with that question have to be lifted in our state. Mm -hmm. So obviously as a statewide candidate, you have the unique perspective that you have your territory to travel and meet with constituents is all over. So in your campaign season, is there 
been anything that has like surprised you or you've learned that you were like, I wasn't expecting? You know, I, I think I was just constantly reaffirmed how people feel about their local community schools and how supportive they are. Um, you know, I, I was, I've been, it's just been incredible um, and an incredible blessing to connect with so many amazing people across the state. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of counties I haven't even got to yet, but um, it's just been, that's been really humbling just to see people's responsiveness and want to hear and want to have conversation and hear what they have to say. Uh, but also reaffirming that they really are very supportive um, in the context of their local communities and their local community schools. And, you know, it's, I don't know that you're, you're just surprised at how wonderful Oklahomans are, but I think I already knew Oklahomans were wonderful, but it was just reaffirming that they are really genuinely care about all of these things going on in our state. Um, so, you know, and it's been interesting, you know, to see some of the national talking points, um, too, that, that, you know, people are concerned about and, and want to know, and they kind of sometimes know they don't feel like that they're seeing that in their own local community school. But again, back to that, well, what's happening in these metro areas or in these large school systems. Um, and I think everybody believes we've got to get keenly focused on literacy and math and writing in our elementary schools and, and really got to get paired back down to some of those basics. Um, but no, it's been great. It really, it's, it's been an exceptional experience. Yeah. So during your campaign on the road, what's been the most challenging thing you've encountered? Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, you finding a time to uh, get some sleep. Um, you know, I, I think for me, it's really just been fitting everything into the schedule uh, is probably the most challenging piece. Um, and, you know, you've always got some people that have, um, some interesting perceptions and you're trying to keenly listen, you know, and, and try to figure out why they're feeling that way and, and what's going on that's created whatever feeling it happens to be that they're having, especially if it's one that is, um, maybe not what you're expecting, you know? So, but I, I can't say that it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting too. You get little groups that are, you know, fan clubs of, of certain, individuals and and the challenging part has been you know they don't really care what you have to say they really aren't interested in understanding anything you have to say they're really just interested in somehow um challenging you because they're really for your opponent and so they're just coming at you from that angle and they don't really have any interest in anything you're really saying it's or understanding and, it, and it's hard because as educators, we want to try to help people understand. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, let me help you and <laughs> well, explain it to you. <laughs> well, or you're just really wanting to make that connection with them because that's what we're used to doing, right? We're used to trying to build bridges, not walls. And you find that there are folks that really don't have any interest in building a bridge. They're just there to challenge you at every turn and really don't care what you have to say. And I think I mean, we know they exist. We deal with them even in the context of a local superintendency, but, um, you know, that's kind of interesting sometimes. I don't know, challenging if that's quite the right word, but it's just, you know, it's everywhere. Yeah. There's such a uniqueness about an election, especially for a statewide candidate um, compared to, let's say, a legislator that has a House district or a Senate district that just, you know, is kind of a finite group that they're working with. How, how, how do you manage that? How do you get to everybody? 
Well, I, you don't. I mean, I, I, I wish I was getting. And how do you have peace with that in your heart? I don't, I don't, because I'd like to be in every community and in, in every county. Um, but you have to kind of give yourself a pass to understand you can't physically get to every single place in the time frame you're trying to do that. Um, and you just do the best you can and keep trying to connect in every way you can with every single person. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of ground to cover. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's arduous at times, but it's also very, very rewarding. And, you know, I think the cool thing is you're going to places and seeing parts of the state that maybe you wouldn't typically have gone to otherwise, um, you, you know, as often, and you're having conversation with folks in parts of the state that, and, and different people that you may not would have had opportunity to encounter, um, if you weren't running for a statewide office. And so that is really also very rewarding too. And, and it's also really incredible. I forgot so, the thing I want to change though. Oh, yeah. that a minute ago. You know, I really have, a, a, I think I've mentioned this many times in places, but I have some interest in looking at a restructure of the state department. Um, and when I say restructure, meaning, you know, is there a service model that maybe makes more sense now when we think about how much we're spread out across the state and some regional service centers. So not more staff, but a reallocation of staff and looking at regional service centers and a core staff in the Oklahoma city area to where we can serve uh, in closer proximity to our rural districts who probably, who really just need a different model of support um, and from the state department, as opposed to what some of our metro area, you know, what they kind of need larger systems. And so I have a big interest in, in digging into that and finding out how, you know, what the opportunity is to do that, because I think, you know, that there's an opportunity for a different service model. Yeah, that I was I was going to kind of say, are there other issues? I know for me, the the testing issue that you kind of brought, brought up, um, I really didn't under as a parent, you know, our kids, I don't think people understand they're tested throughout the year where you get, you know, real feedback. And that's your opportunity to find out, hey, you know, for us reading for one of my kids is a little bit more challenging. And so that was identified easily and it wasn't identified because we took a state test you know and so I think people don't understand how much students are evaluated ongoing in the classroom and how do we kind of lift up those educators to be able to be those professionals to support instead of you know that work at the end of the year which seems so disconnected to everything else. Yeah. And I think then you have this intense pressure and focus on this getting to that end of instruction and getting a certain percentage of the kids up to a certain level. And I always say this, I worry about the kids that come to us in third grade on third grade level already. And so there's so much effort that has to be spent on those that are lagging behind. Then are we at times, not intentionally on a teacher's part, but are we at times leaving out the moving forward and the growth of that child that came to us already on third grade level or ahead? And, you know, really the data will tell us if we look really closely is that oftentimes those kids can regress if we're not careful. And they regress because so much time ends up having to be spent with interventions and trying to get other kiddos up. So when we talk about a growth model. Then we're talking about growth for every child and progress for every child. So now as a teacher, that's what I'm focused on because that's what they really want to be focused on in their classroom anyway, instead of all of these that came to me at first grade level and I'm trying to have to get them up close to proficient in a third grade 
where really if I can see growth with them and their parent can see growth for them, they came in with a first grade level and now I have them to second grade in one month or whatever the, the number is. I've made tremendous progress with that, with that child and that should be celebrated as well. But also with that child that came to me on third grade level, I was actually able to also progress them as well. And so growth models help us do that, you know, and highlight that for parents. And like you said, this goes on in our districts and most of our districts on a regular basis. And, and even if a district isn't doing it at the district level, it is what most teachers are doing in their classroom on a daily basis, trying to figure out where kids are and where they need to be and how we bring them up. And um, it, it's just a lot more probably complex than people understand, but a growth model then helps everyone understand we have a responsibility for every child to grow and progress. So for, for our listeners that may not be in the, in the teacher world, in the academic world, and may be going, I don't, I don't even know what a growth model is. Um, paint, can you paint us a picture? What Because we have to do federal, federal law requires that we we do assessments once a year or at least once a year what in your mind what would you envision that to look like well again you know it's it's a concept we know works in education and to say I have the be-all end-all answer to it today I mean I just have to be honest and say I don't other than I know it works and I, I think there are other states and folks that use it so you go research and find out how are other folks doing that um, and I think they're just as that better model because this aligns with the daily work that a teacher does. They're doing a shorter term assessment. They're determining what your kid is making progress on related to Oklahoma academic standards and where they have gaps. And they're trying to move that, that kiddo forward. So when we talk about growth model, we're saying every child has to progress academically related to Oklahoma academic standards. And so for some they have more areas that they need that growth in. For others, they may be close to already being able to master those Oklahoma academic standards. And how do we push them to the next level as well? And so, you know, I always forget, you know, you can get in the weeds pretty fast when you've done this for <laughs> 30 years and not everybody's, not everybody, they're like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's a reflection. So I think parents want to know how much is my child progressing? Yeah. What did they know when you, when they came to you and what do they know when, when they leave? And I'm not sure that our end of the year instruction exams really tell us that. Yeah. That, that snapshot in time for that, for that one-time test that. Yeah. And federal requirements will make us do assessments, yeah. but I do think there are ways for us to still use a different kind of assessment model and get what has to happen at the federal level as well. Right. Great. That's so, very. And so when, as far as and in this election, you will, there's a, well, the primary runoff, and then there's also a general election. So there's um, several steps ahead. What, out of all, you know, you're running against several people, what kind of, how do you feel like you stand out as a candidate? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I'll say that I'm the only candidate um, in the race that has actual administrative leadership experience, has run a building, has been an assistant superintendent, has actually been a superintendent, has the certification for all those things. And I'm the only candidate that has that and has done that. I'm the only person who's managed multi-million dollar budgets and large staffs of individuals um, and been responsible to you know, set forward a vision uh, for a district and, and try to move things forward. And so I think that's a really unique experience that nobody else in this race has, um, whether that's either side of the, whether that's 
in the primary or whether that's in the general election. I think those are things that are um, very different about my experiences uh, than, than the other individuals. I've managed and been responsible for those large fiscal budgets and responsibilities. Um, also know how to, you know, do staffing models that make sense and, and have a lot of expertise there. So I think those are things that are, you know, make me uniquely qualified. We haven't had anybody in this role since the 80s and 90s that actually was a school administrator and had superintendent certification. And when you talk about one of the largest uh, budgets, which the majority of those funds are already spoken for, right? And you're just a pass through. So I think people have to understand that. You don't, you're not making discretionary decisions over billions of dollars. Most of this money is just a pass through and you're ensuring it gets to where it's supposed to and that oversight of it. Um, but I'm the only candidate who really has that experience with even this federal compliance pieces. We saw the issues that happen when you don't worry about federal compliance. We saw a big fleecing of taxpayer dollars as a result of that. And so I think, you know, experience needs does matter. And we just haven't had anybody in a long time in the superintendent uh, at the state level role, superintendent of public instruction, that's had that experience. Yeah, when I'm out talking with teachers and support professionals, there's a lot of noise happening right now. Let's just call it noise and it's loud. Um, help us maybe debunk some myths that are going on um, that where you just, instead of going, nah, like we want to do sometimes, what are some things that you're hearing and it's just absolutely not true and it's not happening in our schools? Well, you know, we have a, there's just a lot of rhetoric out there and it's really unfortunate um, that there's been such a politicization of, uh, of politicizing of our classrooms and our educators. And, you know, what I know about teachers is what they really want to focus on are, are academic improvements for kids and meeting the needs of kids. And so, you know, I, it's, it's just unfortunate because it begins to tear away at the fiber of the profession and it tears away at the fiber of these individuals that are really there you know, 99% of them for the right reason. The only reason I say 99% is because I did HR too long. So I get a little tainted that there might be this 1% group of folks out there. But, um, you know, it, I, it's just disheartening uh, to, to see this because, you know, teachers really every day, they just want to meet the academic needs of kids. And, you know, they're face-to-face -face with learners that come in that perhaps had to move in the middle of the night because rent was due the next day. And so they had to pick up and move overnight and getting that assignment done just wasn't, you know, the top priority for the day, or uh, they aren't sure if mom's coming home or not coming home or if electricity is going to be available and they come to school and that's where they get the smile and that's where they get, you know, fed and all these things. I remember when we, you know, opened, um, five days a week for families that, that wanted to be there five days a week, that first year out of the pandemic. And we got during board appreciation time, we got all these notes from kids that just said, thank you so much for keeping school open. This is the place where I'm happy, where I'm told that, you know, that I'm, that I do a good job. It's a place where I eat. I mean, th these were just like tearjerker kinds of notes. And that's what I know about our schools and our kids and, and the needs that they have, as well as how much teachers and administrators just want to meet those needs. And so, you know, I find some of the rhetoric that's gone on, you know, just it's hard. It's hard to watch and observe. Uh, nobody wants indoctrination in classrooms. We all know classrooms are for learning. Um, 
And so I, I think that's been really, really hard on educators. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a gut punch to their, it's a gut punch to their heart. <laughs> well, and, and they're, and they're exhausted, you know, coming out of the pandemic. And I mean, I, I just remember our teachers were stressed out and still are stressed out because of these, um, you know, gaps that we have in relation to just all the things that from the pandemic, and that's not to say every child regressed after, during that time, but certainly many of them did. And then many of them, you just had apathy. You know, when they came back, there was just some apathy about getting back in that groove of school. And then we still had so many disruptions to the school year. Um, and so, you know, they were already exhausted and there was a lot of emotion around the pandemic. People ask all the time, what was the hardest thing about that? Now I said, the decisions were not hard for me. I knew the decisions we needed to make. They were clear. I could see the path forward. The hardest thing was just managing everybody's emotions around all of it. And I just don't, and then people really didn't get to rest and reset. And so we had two really, really difficult school years back to back. And so it's unfortunate now then all the politicizing that's been done. Um, one, one thing that you talked about though, is just understanding like money and funding as a state are being on a superintendent in Shawnee, you know, one of the things that over your time, when we talk about funding classrooms, obviously funding teachers, funding is always like this major issue that comes up all of the time. And so what has been your experience as far as funding goes for our schools? Do you see there's a need for increased funding or increased support in certain areas? Well, I mean, I certainly think, you know, we have to really continue to understand that we are 45th, somewhere between 45th and 47th and per pupil funding, depending on sort of whose report you look at. And so we must continue to push for further investments in education. And certainly part of that investments needs to be in teacher salary and support salaries. Um, I do think that we also have to take a really hard look at, are there any things that that we have that maybe need to come off the table that we've been doing that maybe aren't necessary anymore. And, you know, when we, we saw the loft report and we know that there's some disparity um, in relation to how we're funding or weights that perhaps need to change when we talk about impoverished communities and economically disadvantaged students. And so I, I think we have to take all those things to heart, but I also think we have to understand legislators have a budget that, um, they have a lot of people pulling on those purse strings and a lot of core services in our state that we all know need more funding. And so we have to be reasonable about this at the same time. But how do we push for, I'd like to see more of a continued incremental investment as opposed to some large dump of money all at once. And then you don't see anything for a gazillion years. So for me, I think I, I'm more about taking a methodical strategic approach and an incremental approach that's very specific and targeted in its use and then examining returns on investment with that and then saying, no, this didn't matter as much as we thought. Can we take this off the plate? And is there an opportunity for a reinvestment somewhere else? And so I think as we talk about continued investment, we also have to talk about a continual examination of what we've done and a return on investment as we move forward. And so you know, we have to push for it without question. I'd like to see, you know, incentive, incentivizing people to stay longevity in the profession, you know, so step five, 10, 15, 20, um, you know, 
an additional $2,000 a year for those people. And they hit the next mark, it's an additional $3,000 a year. And they hit the next mark and it's another $3,000 a year. So we have this, and there's an incentivization to continue to stay in the profession rather than a large dump. And that's not to say, I don't think our starting salary needs to adjust. I just think we need to put a little more focus on the longevity aspect now. You know, Ohio did a retire rehire program years ago, and that was pretty effective in helping sort of stop some of the bleeding um, on this. And if you want to talk about how you get teachers closer to maybe not six figures, but closer to a six figure number, you do something like a retire rehire program. And you, then they actually have an opportunity to draw that retirement, get paid from a district. I think actuaries at teacher retirement have concern about that, but I'm a little confused about why, because I, I know a whole bunch of people dumping in at once to the system. I think that's their concern, but districts still pay, you know, 17% basically penalty is what I call it for hiring a retired teacher and the retired teacher gets no benefit from that. So I don't know. Is there somewhere in there for us to find a balance? I think there is. So with, you know, with TRS, teacher retirement system, I don't want I want to spell out my acronym, um, that the rules had changed from what we call the 80, that your years of experience and um, how long you've taught and how your age equals 80. So this has been to 90 and then it's moved to 90, 65 or whatever. Um, saying that, do you think we've outlived our minimum state salary schedule of step 25 being the top step? Well, I've yet to work in a district where I capped it at 25. So um, I do think, I mean, I, and I've heard this. Um, it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because it actually came up last night. I was in Medill last night and it came up there. So I do think, yes, we need to look at extending that table. I know districts can independently choose to do that. Um, and like I said, I've never been in a district where I didn't advocate for us to continue adding a step. If we had individuals that were hitting that next step, you just go ahead and add that step. Um, so yeah, I think if, if we believe that that matters to make sure that all districts do that, then, then we should be having a conversation about it. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we have people staying more than 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you'd like to at least see it go to 30. Absolutely. And that'll especially, probably have to be an incremental approach as well. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if, if you're coming right out of college and you have to be, you have to be 65 to retire. That's, that's way more. Well, and what we know about the, this generation coming up is they're likely to change professions three or four times. I mean, that's not to say that hasn't been done in the past. I just think they're even more likely to do that than even previous generations. Um, they look at a diversity of experience differently than we do. I remember having this conversation um, when I was still in HR and folks would be like, well, they just bounce around every two or three years. And it's like, this is a generation of young people that see that as an opportunity for diversification of experiences where we all came from the generation of, you go to work someplace, you put your head down, you go to work for 10 years before you, you know, move to a different location. And so it's just, just a different thought process. And I think we have to understand that. Yeah. I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Grace. I know you, um, I wish you sleep in, you know, a few days after all of this <laughs> comes to a close. We'll sleep after Tuesday. We'll sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
we'll, we'll worry about sleep then. Um, and then, you know, they'll, hopefully we'll be coming out as, as the winter then, and there'll still be work to do. So, but we might be able to catch our breath for a week or so, at least before we get back at it. So anyway, appreciate the opportunity to visit with you guys. Thank you for being with Thank us. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, let's just take some time and catch up with Catherine. Ellen, I am so excited that we're back. I know we said that at the beginning of the show, but I am so jazzed. Did you have a great summer? Did your boys have a great summer? They did. They had such a good summer. They dragged their feet a little going back, but we, we've been back about a week now, and they are so happy to be back in school. Well, it has been amazing going around the state at our back to school teacher events and seeing smiles and giving hugs and, and people are excited to be back. You know, the most important thing I have on my mind, I don't know about you, Ellen, but it is uh, we've got a primary runoff coming up on Tuesday. Uh, and the only thing I can think of is three words, vote, vote, vote. We yeah. need people at the polls to go out and vote. And um, there is an election for everyone. And um, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, Democrat, you have two, um, you have one for US Senate. There's a runoff between Madison Horn and Jason Bollinger. And then there are several runoffs on the Republican side. So there is no reason that I should not see mega pictures on Facebook with voting stickers on that you're able, that you can't go, I didn't have it. You, everybody has an election. But the most important thing is education is on the ballot. Every election we have, education is on the ballot. And so, in fact, Ellen, um, remind us again, okay, voter portal, if you're wanting to look at your sample ballot, right? Yes. Yeah, so if they go to voter portal, they can look up, you know, what their ballot's going to look like, remind themselves of where they're supposed to go vote, you know, because maybe someone yeah. missed the June primary and didn't know their polling place, you know, wasn't there. Right. And it, you know, it's a good reminder. Say someone did forget, hey, I was traveling in June. I completely forgot to vote for the original primaries. Can I still vote for in the runoffs? Absolutely. Run. Yeah. Yes, you can vote. And it's also important to know that if you are tied up in school on Tuesday and you're starting to get anxious, I don't, I'm not going to make it. You can go on Saturday to your county election board. Yeah. So like it started yesterday on Thursday, right? So yes. Thursday, Friday, Saturday at your county election board and or on Tuesday at your polling place. But I what I also want, I want everyone to find, like I've said before, five friends that you're going to hold accountable and you're going to call and you're going to say, did you vote? Did you vote? I need you to vote. Um, I, I know our legislative update is going out to our members today uh, on Friday. It's a day early, but um, it'll have um, our recommendations in there, our OEA recommendations. And I just I just want to remind people, OEA, the recommendations come from our PAC, the Fund for Children in Public Education, that is made up of members that are voted on by members we interview candidates, we make recommendations, and, and it doesn't, we're not telling you how to vote. We're just telling you, these are the people we've talked with, and these, this is the reason why we are supporting a specific candidate. And so look for that email. It'll be, it'll be coming in your inbox today. And, and if you have any questions, please reach out to us. Um, let us know, and we're happy to help in any way we can. Um, so, so Ellen, 
real quickly, are the, are the boys in school yet? Have they started? Yeah, yeah they started. Okay. They've had their first week and they have they have loved it. Um, fourth grade and then middle sixth grade. So oh. um, it's been a really good transition back to, you know, being in the classroom and back to seeing all their friends. And yeah, um, it's been good. And it's cooled down. So thank goodness. Okay. My grand my granddaughter started last week and my grandson started on Thursday. And so uh, everybody's back in school. Samantha is starting, her, my daughter's starting her second year of teaching. So oh. it's just all kinds of excitement going on. Um, we're excited and, and I, I'm personally excited for our members um, and that they have the opportunity to have their vo- voice and their vote um, heard. Um, at the ballot box on August the 23rd. So please go out and vote. Yes. And I'm thankful for um, that superintendent, um, April Grace joined us um, today. And thank you all for joining us back again. We missed you all. We missed our conversations about why public education matters and what's happening in Oklahoma. Um, I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Katherine Bishop, president of OEA. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review Fried Okra on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at friedokrapodcast at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, keep fighting the good fight for public education. <laughs>